you can break climbing down into the um, the what, the who, and the where, which is a way, way to take a very complex subject and look at it in a simple way. So basically, when you start off climbing as a young person, it's all about the what. I mean, you don't really care who you're climbing with. It's just as long as you can send V8 or 512 or something like that, you know, and it's, did I do the famous climb and stuff like that? But as time goes on, you start to realize that it's also about the where, it's your surroundings, like you, it's this excuse to go to these incredible places around the world. And then, you know, finally, in the end, what you look back on is all the personal experiences with who you were climbing with. Welcome back to Afterglow. I'm Brendan Madigan, your host, and this is our fifth episode with rock climbing authors Chris Noble and Doug Robinson. For those of you who don't know of Chris and Doug, they are accomplished climbers, engaging personalities, and between them have over 100 years of climbing experience. Not only is Chris one of the world's leading adventure photographers, but he's also an accomplished author. His new book, Why We Climb, is a celebration of the aspects of the climbing life that are most meaningful and long-lasting. His work focuses on the strong connection to partners in nature, the physical and mental mastery of the sport, and the rewards of exploring oneself and the world through climbing. His work asks what compels men and women to dedicate their lives to the challenges and deprivations of living a life in the vertical world. Doug Robinson is an internationally respected mountaineer, guide, and backcountry skier, who is also known for his poetic musings about the mountains and why we climb them. Robinson helped lead the clean climbing revolution in the 1970s, an environmental movement that eliminated the use of pitons and encouraged climbers to lighten their impact on the rock by employing aluminum wedges into cracks as protection. He followed his essay, The Whole Natural Art of Protection, which was published in the influential 1972 Chouinard catalog with the first clean ascent of the face of Half Dome, made in 1973 with Galen Rao. Having cut his teeth during Yosemite's golden age, Doug has accomplished more during his climbing career than most could ever dream of. He's also a major feature in Noble's latest book, Why We Climb. Chris and Doug joined us in October of 2017 at one of our in-store tailgate talks at Alpenglow Sports. It was a special evening where both Chris and Doug presented tales from their writings. Our conversation took a deep dive into the philosophical and spiritual motivations behind the sport of climbing. We speak at length about the power of partnerships, how adversity can be used for ultimate gain in everyday life, and how climbers process the death of partners. Chris speaks candidly about the conversations in Why We Climb, including those which provide a template for living a fully realized life. Doug is one of the iconic climbers featured in Why We Climb, and throughout our conversation, he lends sage and wise insights. Doug tells us that, in rock climbing, we start by looking for handholds, and we end up with higher consciousness. My conversation with Chris and Doug is extremely powerful, and I hope it's one you enjoy.
I was born in 1945 <clears throat> in Washington, D.C., um, two weeks after Hiroshima. Wow. And I was born in 1955 in Lima, Ohio, in the Midwest, and uh, yeah, years after Hiro Hiroshima, <laughs> luckily. But we were still building, uh, what, bomb shelters in the basement, just in case, so... And how, how did you guys end up out west? Um, I, w I, I was brought to the west by skiing. I was really addicted to skiing as a teenager uh, in Michigan and places like that. And so when I graduated from high school, I went to the University of Colorado, and that kind of brought me to the west. And my dad worked for NASA, so he brought me when I was five years old out to Silicon Valley, what was going to become Silicon Valley. Because the aerospace industry there, there was a NASA lab that um, really was part of the genesis of Silicon Valley. Awesome. And so I grew up in California. They took me right away to Tenaya Lake in Yosemite to go camping, and I thought, all right, this is cool. I, I can do, do this. How did you guys get into climbing? I started climbing in college, um, even though it was sort of like a way to kill time before the ski season started and I think the very first week at the University of Colorado I signed up for a rock climbing class which just um, by complete coincidence was taught by Jeff Long who's still a well-known uh, writing a uh, mountaineering writer and uh, so he and I clicked in a certain way just because he was very interested in writing so was I that's why I that's what I wanted to major in in school and so he was a bit of a mentor for me in that he, you know, tried to write every day, tried to climb every day and tried to read something every day. And I always, that always has stuck with me as a really great way to approach life. No doubt. How about you, Doug? Well, starting camping in Tuolumne when I was five, hiking the trails and then wandering off the trail, going up peaks, it was a very gradual thing. But by the time I was 13, I was getting myself into trouble third-classing and going beyond that, and so um, my parents wisely steered me towards the Sierra Club where I learned how to use a rope. Yeah, I read a story about scrambling up Peewee Dome and getting <laughs> stranded. That was the big event, actually. I spent all afternoon up there on my tiptoes with my hands flat on the rock and waiting to be rescued, really, which... Thank goodness, George Whitmore, one of the guys who was on the first um, ascent of El Cap, happened to be in Tuolumne and um, dropped a rope to me that day. Are your calves still sore from that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you should have seen me the next day. <laughs> Probably couldn't walk. <laughs> and then how did you guys meet each other? Well, I feel like I met Doug back in the 70s when I was reading all of his work, right? Cool. And that's because I was when I was first climbing. And so the, everything he'd written for the Chouinard catalog and things like that was extremely influential, not just to me, but to almost everyone from that generation. And uh, But I, I just really, uh, I don't know, there was something about the combination of Muir and Gary Snyder and the Pacific, uh, the Sierras, all that atmosphere just was so appealing to me honestly. And so that's actually one thing that really I liked about climbing was just that I thought the writing was so strong and evocative. And I mean, the entire mountaineering tradition of literature at that time was really vibrant. And so 
you know, I felt like I met him then, but in reality, until I started working on this book, this book gave me the opportunity to reach out to him and then, and then meet him in person, which was great. <laughs> which I even feel better. like I met you decades ago too. <laughs> you know, all these photos in the ski magazines, mm. and I'm just a backcountry skier. I go out and plod along in the snow, and I go, "There's no way that I'm going to ever be in that situation where the powder's flying and the sun's coming through the crystals." It's I could have set it up for you. Don't worry. <laughs> yeah, you do that well. Well, yeah, let's get it, let's get into the to the book itself. But obviously, Chris, you've been a climber for you know your entire life and been on tons of expeditions. What was it in your personal journey that drew you to creating the book? Boy, the book is sort of a combination of the journey, I guess. Um, I, you know, it was, it's a bunch of different factors. One was that I'd had a very successful career doing both editorial and commercial photography and writing. And I was just looking for more long-term projects to tell you the truth. You know, it's, it's fun doing magazine articles. It's fun doing a photo shoot for North Face or something, but obviously in the end, you want to leave some kind of a legacy, I think. And, um, so I, you know, I've thought about books forever and, um, so prior to Why We Climb, I did a book for uh, Falcon called Women Who Dare, and it was it's similar in format. Uh, it was profiles of very well-known and inspirational women climbers. Um, however, being a man uh, putting a book like that together, it wasn't really my place to do a lot of the writing or interject a lot of my opinions. I just I created a format for the women to speak for themselves, and uh, that went well. And so then I was just looking for something else and I wanted to do something that I could, you know, collab I could contribute more myself in terms of my own personal writing and beliefs and things like that. So this, that's how this book grew out of that. And, um, but we liked the format of, you know, getting a bunch of well-known inspirational climbers involved. So we did that both men and women on the second go around. Right. And was it a, how long of a process was this book to come to fruition? It takes about two years. I mean, it would be nice to have longer, but honestly, just the uh, realities of the publishing trade, you sort of, it takes a year to sign a contract and then it's just like, you got to go to work right away and get it done. Right. Yeah. How about as the process unfolded over that year um, and you interviewed these amazing athletes, were there themes or consistencies that emerged? I think there are. I think that... When you talk to, and it doesn't matter if they're elite climbers or just somebody that started climbing a couple of weeks ago in the gym, I mean, there's all kinds of different themes that come up, but mostly it's sort of like challenge. Uh, that's one. Challenge and adventure is a big theme. Um, Community is huge. These days, competition is, is a big reason people climb. Um, that, for Doug and I, that's sort of like, that came after us. I mean, we were all competing on some level, but not overtly as kids are today. Like if you come up on a climbing gym, uh, team, obviously you're a competitive climber. And um, so you're doing it for different reasons. And then there's also, you know, just going to wonderful places. There's the connection to nature and that kind of gets into the spiritual aspects of it as well. So, um, but you know, if you ask people over and over and over again, one, they'll kind of bring up one of those things typically. You've been quoted as saying, this is not a book of answers, it's a book of possibilities. Right. And I, I think that's important. I think for me personally, if you start off to write a book and you know all the answers, 
that's really kind of a deadening process. I'm not really interested in that. I think writing and all creativity for that matter is an exploration of the subject. It's a way for you not to speak to others about what you already know, but to find out what you don't know about the topic. And so that's, I think that's really important. And of course, I also point out in the book that, you know, the answer to why we climb is different for every single climber on the planet. And uh, so it's not, I don't want to pretend like I have the answers. I think it's something that people need to find out for themselves. Boy, you chose pretty well because this is the most open-ended question in all of climbing. Yeah, and that was a little intimidating too. I I honestly did not come up with the title. The publisher wanted to call it that. I wanted to call it something like the soul of climbing or something along those lines. That's what I was really interested in. And they're like, oh, no, no, there's too many books on soul, the soul in the title already, right? And everybody all think it's about religion. And I didn't want to tell them it really is about religion. But um, <laughs> so anyway, they, they came up with it. And they wanted at first to call it Why I Climb. And I'm like, not with my name on the title. You're not going to do that. <laughs> It's like only my grandmother would buy that. So uh, <laughs> I talked him into doing why we climb and then got people like Doug to come in and back me up, basically. Right. Yeah, yeah, just sign the contract and then I'm going to do what I'm going to do. Precisely. And that's kind of how it works, right? Yeah. But it, you're right, a pretty daunting topic. I mean, it's kind of a um, a classic question, right? It's the question everybody asks. And, it, and when you think about it, every single article about climbing, every book that's ever been written is really about that same question in a way. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can, I mean, I can appreciate it from, and I know I get the, the vibe of this. And actually, I think in some interviews, you speak to it directly. There's very much a characterization of that hero's journey in each and every one of those interviews. Going into it, we're evolving the process were there any um unanticipated lessons that arose from the interviews ah that's a really good question um hmm. not particularly although i'm always uh, a little bit surprised how difficult it is for people to talk about the spiritual aspect of it and and doug and i've discussed that and he, and he talks about it in his interview on it as well and, and as he points out i think it's just a general discomfort and also a confusion of mixing up spirituality with religion in our culture to tell you the truth mm-hmm. um so people don't want to sound preachy they don't want to sound religious and also, there's a tradition in climbing not to take yourself very seriously. Um, and that's a healthy tradition, honestly. Peter Croft has a great quote, which is, I don't take myself seriously at all, but I take climbing very seriously. And that's an awesome, to me, that kind of sums up exactly the way you should be. You know, because it's the climbing that's important. But when we make ourselves important, you're, you're really skating on thin ice there, honestly. Right. And so most top climbers realize they need to skate away from that a little bit and then put some distance to it. And some people just don't. I think a lot of climbers are engineering brain kind of people, mathematicians and things like that. And they just they believe in what they can see and touch with their own hands. And that's it. And they don't need any more deeper meaning than that. It's totally satisfactory for them. Um, And others seek some kind of uh, deeper meaning. And so... um, you know, Doug, what do you think about that? I was just thinking that I liked what you said about people downplaying 
Nobody gets puffed up about, well, let me lay on my spiritual view of the universe to you. You got two hours. But I was thinking of Alex Honnold, you know, who who earned his nickname, No Big Deal. And he has a wonderful attitude mm. that just rolls out of him. And yet the all the spiritual subtext is right there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Alex is one that... You know, he didn't want to say that a spiritual. He, I mean, he's a, an avowed um, atheist for one thing. So he doesn't really, he doesn't buy into any of the religious stuff. And, uh, and, and but then at the same time, you know, he says, well, you know, I appreciate the beauty. I appreciate being in touch with nature, just like everyone else. So there's certainly that aspect of it. And you just, but it's difficult to express, right? I mean, he said in another interview with Chris Caloose on the uh, Norma cast that he goes. You know, I don't drink, I don't smoke. Basically, I'm just like a Mormon who free solos or something. No, oh, I, yeah, I'm basically, I'm just like a Mormon who doesn't believe in God. So. <laughs> and you would never know. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hanging out with him, what he's capable of doing. No, no, he has, you know, very little attitude, really. Right. Yeah. Did you get a different sense of, um, you know, that kind of gray area for people to talk about the spiritual side of things between say different genders or different um, generations of the folks you interviewed? I think that when I think older people that have been involved longer as a lifelong pursuit, they think about it more. A friend of mine, Dirk Tyler in the opening chapter, I had a quote from him because he, he said, well, you can break climbing down into the, um, the what, the who and the where, which is a way, way to take a very complex subject and look at it in a simple way. So basically, when you start off climbing as a young person, it's all about the what. I mean, you don't really care who you're climbing with. It's just as long as you can send V8 or 512 or what, something like that, you know, and it's, did I do the famous climb and stuff like that. But as time goes on, you start to realize that it's also about the where, it's your surroundings, like you, it's this excuse to go to these incredible places around the world. And then, you know, finally, in the end, what you look back on is all the personal experiences with who you were climbing with. Right. I think Peter Croft had a great story along those lines of, you know, going back to Squamish and climbing with an old buddy and his buddy had bad knees and they climbed two crappy pitches and his buddy couldn't go further. And Peter reflected on that as one of his best days of the season. Exactly. Yeah. And that's obviously coming from a very wise place to see that. And I mean, a lot, I think a lot of people probably feel that way without even knowing that they feel that way to tell you the truth. Right. Kind of a natural yeah. human. Yeah. I asked Calus too. I said, well, do you have any advice for the younger generation and coming up? And he goes, yeah, it's not about the numbers. I would he goes, I, I would say it's not about the numbers, but he goes, I don't even believe that. So I can't tell, you know, people that, right. <laughs> but it's true. Right. <laughs> it isn't about the numbers. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it'll be interesting to see the folks that, you know, Tommy, for instance, you know, or Emily Harrington coming from a competitive climbing background to evolving into a you know big wall trad climber and it'll be fascinating to see where her mindset is in another 15 years right it is but i think that those kids have already turned the corner on that to tell you the truth and in women who dare i remember um a lot of the women talking about it i think women come from that place to begin with honestly for the most part and the other thing you have to realize is that if you're if you're in this only for competition you're going to stop you're not going to, you know, basically when you stop winning, you're going to go on and be a mountain biker or a mountain runner or something like that. 
it's not about the activity. It's about the competition there. And so it doesn't matter whether it's climbing or something else. You just fill in the blanks. But if you want to become a lifelong advocate of climbing, uh, basically a disciple of it, then you're going to have to, you have to realize it's all about the process and all these other things. I just had an epiphany this week about that uh, because a line that Peter Croft said to me when I interviewed him in Yosemite Valley way back in 1987, he was the hot guy, just soloed Astro Man, and, um, <clears throat> and we got him on film for um, Moving Over Stone Tape. And he, he said, even then, he could, he said, you know, someday in the future when I, he says, if I can only climb 5'8", then I'm going to push toward 5'8", and I'm still going to be doing it. And it's like the gleefulness that he has about moving on the rock mm -hmm. that infused that moment. And, you know, I, um, now I'm in my 70s, and I can appreciate that a little more. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think, you know, for me, I was never that good a climber to begin with. So it had to be about the process, honestly. It wasn't about chasing numbers and it was just about the experience. And I feel that more than ever. I mean, when I worked on Women Who Dare, it started, it was kind of funny. And my wife can attest to this, but I was uh, pretty addicted to climbing before that. But I started working on that book and I was surrounded by all these women who they're just totally unapologetic, right? I mean, it's not like, I mean, I come from a generation that there was still this uh, Puritan work ethic kind of thing. Like, oh, you're gonna go, you're gonna go do these things, but you're gonna come back and get a real job. And it's like, no mom, I'm not actually. But I still feel a little guilty about it. And then, you know, these girls in the book, they're just like, this is what I do, you know? This is my purpose on this planet. And I don't have to apologize for anybody about that. And I, you know, that, that really got in my blood too. And I'm just like, holy cow, this is awesome. You know, when you're surrounded by people that know what their purpose is and know what their passion is, it's very, very inspiring. There's a lot of power in owning your passions, right? And there really is. Yeah. 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 I think that's a common line through all of these interviews. Mm. You know, it's, it's very powerful. What interview, uh, besides Doug's, of course, did you find the most enlightening? I think... You know, they all have their little gems of wisdom. I think that, well, Peter is extremely inspiring to me. I mean, he, again, for all the reasons we're talking about, he's like this kid in the candy shop, basically. You know, and after all these years, all the millions of vertical, he's still so amazingly excited to go climbing. And so, man, you just can't, you cannot beat that. Alex is inspiring because he's so amazingly grounded and intelligent. I mean, he's the most clear seeing person I've ever been around in any, in any walk of life, honestly. And before I had worked with him on a personal level like that, I, you know, I was worried for him and I thought like everybody, Oh my God, he's going to kill himself. Um, but you know, after being around him for a while, you're just like, well, he's just so bloody good that this is fairly normal for him and more power to him. And then, you know, and Tommy, uh, again, is sort of just uh, the American poster boy for, you know, for climbing, right? He's just, again, very enthusiastic. He's, you know, got a family. He's, he's very safety-minded. So I, I like what he has to say there. I mean, he's pushing the limits of free climbing, but in his own way. And he, you know, he's found his little niche on uh, El Capitan, and he sticks with it. And so uh, you have to admire that. You say also in the book... 
that by talking with these elite climbers, it's provided you a template for living a fully realized life. Can you elaborate on that? You know, life's complicated. And Doug talks about this in his interview. He, you know, I, he says that um, modern life is really non-spiritual in a way. I mean, the, te- the pace, the tempo, the confusion of it. Um, and Will Gadd talks about that in his writing, just that, you know, he, he's fully tuned in when he goes into wilderness and he's just spinning when he's out in the city kind of thing. And I think everybody has a little bit of that experience and I think it's accelerating. I think that uh, life is just getting so nuts all the time now that um, people are, you know, looking for something, but they don't, unless you live in a place like Tahoe city or something, you know, if you live in a city, it's just very difficult to find that. Right. And, uh, even if you get four days off to go on vacation, it's difficult. Again, Doug says in his, um, interview about, you know, it takes like three or four days to kind of settle in in wilderness. Right. And, and you get away from the phone and you get away from all that stuff. So, um, that, to me, this is a way in the modern world that we can actually tap into that kind of consciousness that is really the birthright of the human race, as far as I'm concerned. That's how we evolved. Um, we've added all this complexity on top of it. And this is a way to cut through the clutter and kind of reconnect with that. But still, you know, you're not living in a cave. Uh, you don't have to go out and be a hermit to do it. Right. I think your point about searching is super valid regardless of age right yeah so i think and doug and i were talking about this earlier we're everyone's so connected which has caused a lot of disconnection in my eyes do you see that in in the athletes that you work with and write about that Uh, they're searching through this sport well yeah i mean tommy talks about when he was up on the dawn wall dropping his phone (laughs) right And, (laughs) and you know he says well people think i did it on purpose i didn't do it on purpose but i wasn't sad to see it go So then he just got into the experience while Kevin still had his phone and was just like going ape shit over social media the whole time, right? So you're not really on El Cap, you're on your friggin' phone. I mean, so you've got to sever that connection, you know, to really be in the present moment. Right. Yeah, and it's, it's fascinating too. I think it's a really good point. It's kind of that central pillar of climbing is you, like you say, you have to be in the moment. And when you see people who are so attached to technology searching for something, connection, conversation, when there's a person walking down the street next to you and you could fulfill that in that vein of just talking to another human, it's pretty fascinating. I know, but scary. Very scary. Yeah. We're losing some personal skill set, communication, empathy, maybe, arguably. Yeah. And there's now there's some data to support all that. Too. Right. There's hope, too. My daughter, who's 21, has, in the last year, several times, given up on Facebook. Got nope. Yeah. Backing away, walking away. I'm going outside. That's awesome. But she you... comes back, too. But, sure. You know, but it, I like the movement. I like the thought behind it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I've, I've tried to take those steps myself as almost 40-year-old, you know, to rein it in, but... Mm-hmm. We can all do an own other podcast on the the devil of social media <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> that we're all kowtowing to. Um, 
but between between your you know what i would say is a critically acclaimed book women who dare and i would encourage everyone to check it out um, and now why we climb have you found a market difference between men and women when it comes to the actual motivations behind climbing i know you spoke to that a little bit but uh you know not huge not at the elite level I mean, those people are completely committed and they're, um, you know, it's game on for those guys, uh, whether they're men or women. Um, I remember Brittany Griffith in Women Who Dare had an interesting comment that she said until she discovered climbing, her life was a mess and that climbing creates the central axis around everything. I mean, you know, like she <laughs> she's no longer married to that person but she was married to a climber and her you know her job was climbing and everything was sort of the stars were all aligned that way and uh and most of her friends were climbers i mean maybe that's i mean people listening to this podcast go wow that's really narrow-minded and short-sighted and stuff but i understand what she's saying that you're not really you're not asking a lot of questions it's just like well how does this fit in with my climbing lifestyle right and that's uh, that's one way to cut through the clutter, is all I can say. It's not for everybody, but you can do the same thing with dance or with art or anything. You know, um, I I kind of like being single pointed. I, I enjoy that. I get I'm worse when I'm multitasking, so I kind of like that kind of focus. Personally, Doug, what do you think? You touch the stone and everything changes. Hmm. You pull right into now, and. <clears throat> Whether your iPhone's in your back pocket, you can't even remember that anymore. So, yeah. I mean, it. I had the good luck to get into it early, and, and uh, I cannot imagine what my life might have been like if I hadn't been fortunate enough to stumble on this incredible thing to do, this, I call it a physical meditation, you know? Mm -hmm. And I went out yesterday afternoon. I do, I, I liked what you said about... Um, writing, reading, and um, getting out every day, you know, and I go, yeah, I'm doing that, and I didn't even plan to, but it's, um, thank goodness. And one thing informs the other, I think. Oh, yeah. You know, I think if you're a writer, you need some physical activity. I, I do. I don't know about you, but my my brain just shuts down, so then if I go for a walk or I go climbing or something, it's like, oh, yeah, that's what I was trying to say. <laughs> Right outside the door, there's a splitting mall. <laughs> and if the paragraphs aren't happening, I can go out, <laughs> Start get chopping a little wood. sweat, and <laughs> go, oh, yeah, that's where I'm going next. Mm. Sure, but it all works together. For sure. I carry my notebook when I'm, when I'm climbing now. It's, you know, I don't, I don't carry much anymore. I put on my approach shoes, and I put my notebook in my pocket, and I go out and scramble around you know it's it ain't much as far as climbing the comp climbers would laugh but mm -hmm. um that's okay it's good for me and i'm just and i'm right there and then bing stuff starts to happen and pretty soon i'm sitting on top of the rock right in the way yeah i definitely have that experience too i love that I do too. Yeah, I, I love it too. Because that's, that's, I mentioned the whole process of discovery, you know, that's when you're actually discovering something that never occurred to you before. I mean, you're, yeah. you know, you put all that information mm -hmm. into your brain and then the subconscious starts making connections between 
disparate things. And it's just all of a sudden like, wow, that's so, I mean, if you're not exciting, if you're not surprising yourself, I think you're going to bore the shit out of the reader personally. <laughs> it's inspiration. And I, I come to think that unless writing is inspired, then it didn't, it ain't worth doing. And, you know, I mean, there's tons of bad writing and mediocre writing out there. And I don't aspire to that. You know, when I was in college, I didn't study journalism on purpose. I studied literature. I wanted to read the best stuff that had ever been written, the most exciting things. And I'm so glad I did. And I'm trying to write that way. Yeah, I think some of the some of the best ideas and friendships and, you know, just kind of depth of conversation comes, whether it's in the skin track or on, tied to someone else, you know, yeah. no denying that. I think that's very primal right it says a lot if we listen to it um and i really like your in your interview doug where you speak to climbing as a part of who you are not just something you do you know and those two concepts fit together extremely nicely you can go out and you're inspired and you can sit in front of a keyboard all day and not be inspired it says a lot right yeah to me that's kind of the perfect life honestly that kind of balance between being in nature and creativity and you know Thoreau even said something about the length of his writing each day was determined by the length of the walk he took that day as well and it's just uh I think that the you know there are a lot of modern writers they sit in a room all the time I mean they've never been in nature half of them live in cities somewhere and the writing reflects it and there's nothing they're all I mean there's some amazing writers I mean I can't I could never write like that but I think that going out and having experience you know, to me, that's a hell of a lot easier to write about than making it all up in your head. You know, some of those people, to their credit, are working the human landscape, too. That's right, and exactly. I don't do that so much, although here we are, but, mm -hmm. <laughs> and thank you. But um, I learn from them if they do it well. Exactly, yeah. But I couldn't live that way. No, I can't either. I mean, okay. that's not to say that they're not insanely good writers. Much better than I'll ever be, but yeah. But you probably have a lot more fun. In the in the foreword of the book, Conrad speaks to the many possibilities of, of why we climb, and they range from our eternal drive for exploration, narcissism, you know, the ephemeral nature of life, kind of the, the gamut, you know, of, of themes. Um, and you dive deeply into, into all of that with each person. Were there any concepts or uh, anything that people brought up that either surprised you or that you weren't thinking of that would come out of the conversations? Yeah, one thing that surprised me was Paige Clausen, um, who's a, you know, she was a competitive climber. Now she sort of travels the world doing hard, um, hard climbs, 514. Um, and, and she's also a self-avowed Christian. So I was interested to talk to her because I wanted to see what her aspect or her ideas were about spirituality and climbing. And I was surprised because she said, oh, I don't think climbing spiritual. She goes, I just think that um, God has a plan for me. And part of that is to be a climber. And so she, you know, it was just, it was, it was interesting. Um, because, there, yeah, there wasn't really a lot of follow-through there. There were other people, like, you know, like here's Honold, who's an atheist, um, you know, saying that, well, I don't really believe in spirituality, but climbing's kind of spiritual, right? And and Paige, being religious, saying, oh, no, climbing's not spiritual. It's just a sport. Yeah, but it fits in with the master plan that, that she has going. So, I don't know. That, that was a little bit surprising. Um, 
it's not good or bad. It's just, it's just different. It's just different my, than my point of view. Right. Just perspective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Doug, I know I really liked your quote that we start by looking for handholds and we end up with higher consciousness. Mm. How's your personal spirituality interwoven with climbing? Obviously it's much more than a sport. Yeah. It's a practice to me, which means it's like, I don't know, the, the closest religious thing to climbing that I can think of is, is Zen Buddhism. Um, tai Chi is really good because it's a movement, a spirituality through movement, and, and so is climbing. So I go out and I get on the rock and I'm connected to <clears throat> nature and to the earth, and it helps me stay connected to myself. And I love wilderness, so I go out into the wilderness to see what's there, and it reflects back to me the wildness that's inside me. And so I learn about myself by doing difficult and sometimes dangerous things, you know, in the backcountry. Um, I was going to say ultimately it comes back to me, but it doesn't. It's the interaction, really, and and the you really can't have one, I can't have one without the other. They um, push on each other in very evocative ways. I think that, you know, one thing that Doug talks about in his writings um, is that climbing sort of a side effect of this love affair with mountains, you know, and that's how I came to it too. Like I was in love with mountains, <laughs> not through climbing, but through skiing originally, which brought me to the West. And... Um, and I think that's something that's been lost a little bit and, and not, I mean, uh, again, I'm, I don't want to sound critical of the current generation, but I mean, kids learn to climb in a gym, which is awesome because then it gets them connected, to, you know, eventually I hope they leave the gym and they go get connected to nature. So it's that, that uh, entryway into the process. But when he and I started climbing, I think it was a way to go to amazing places we couldn't visit normally right and it wasn't at all to me about how hard i could climb it was just like oh wow i get to go up on this vertical frozen waterfall that there's no way i could explore that if i didn't know these techniques and um i don't know i still have a soft spot in my heart for that honestly um and again maybe that's why you know we sort of side slip the whole numbers game a little bit because you know right from the get-go it was just a um, means to an end rather than just an end in itself of just climbing. And, you know, I go out and I, I project stuff. I try to climb hard sport stuff at my level. And, you know, that's fun too. But it's also fun to get to the top of a big peak somewhere. And that wasn't very difficult. Just uh, took a lot of time and effort. And um, it's got a beautiful view at the top. So I, don't, I just want, I guess what I'm saying is don't overlook that part, you know, make sure you've got the whole gamut. As Ray Buffas said, you know, you should experience all those different aspects of climbing because they're all wonderful, actually. Right. Yeah. Super valid. Yeah. And how about your own personal take on the, the spirituality side of it? I mean, you'd have to be living under a rock reading this book to not realize that it's a, a topic of interest for you and that you you know kind of play off of the the interviewers um commentary there yeah i i say and there's a chapter devoted to um the spiritual aspects and what i say is that it's interesting to me like to think about what would have happened if 
climbing had been invented in feudal Japan, which was a very spiritual <laughs> society, right? And everything they did from calligraphy to um, flower arrangement to sword fighting was tied in with spirituality. Climbing to me has all the same elements of all those things. And as Doug said, it's a practice. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a practice that orients your entire life. And um, so that, that's what appeals to me. I mean, that's why I climb for the, for the most part. And so, um, and also it's just something that is, hasn't been discussed a huge amount in the climbing literature for whatever reason, you know? And so it's something to bring up and uh, discuss and, you know, like, and see what other people are thinking. Cause I think when people talk about stuff in public, it gives others permission to do the same. Right. And why do you think that is that it hasn't been talked about? We More. touched on it a little bit. I think part of it's just the culture's uh, aversion to organized religion a little bit and, uh, c- you know, conflating the two things, spirituality and religion. And uh, again, just, you know, not wanting to sound pompous. Uh, Talk to me about partnerships. I know Peter has just an awesome quote. A true partner is someone who inspires you to be better than you are. And that chapter with he and Conrad was, I think, super insightful and uh, yeah. inspiring mm-hmm. yeah <clears throat> yeah i got inspired when you called me up to work on this book <laughs> <laughs> i've been thinking about this while we're sitting here because as a writer writing can be pretty lonely hmm. i mean you sit in your cell like a monk and you do your output and in the pre-internet days you didn't get much feedback either you know you'd burn into somebody go oh nice article oh thanks but now, um, you know, in the internet, that's one of the great things about the internet is that I'm getting tons more feedback now. But I still sit in my quiet space and write. Mm-hmm. So you came along and invited me, lured me into this conversation. And, you know, I thank you because we, we had a great time. We went on for days, as I recall, talking and working on it and, and you know, hammering out the ideas together and you were asking questions and I got to expound a little and think about what I was actually responding to what you asked. And then our conversation, and I don't think I've said this to you, but our conversation continued after the book was published because you had a lengthy introduction mm-hmm. to the book and I Honestly, I turned to some of the other athletes and started reading what they had to say. And then I went, wait a minute, here's Chris's introduction. And I, and I started reading and I go, wow, this, this guy's really thought a lot about this. Because, you know, you'd been asking me questions and encouraging me to expound. And, and here you were taking your turn. And that, to me, it's one of the most glowing parts of the book to, mm. to read all the thought that you had put into it over so many decades well thanks doug yeah one of the best part one of the best experiences from doing the book was actually we got to go and stay in his cabin in rock creek which he talks about in all those early essays you know like when he lived up there for years and uh, so and we kind of got snowed in a little bit <laughs> it's a beautiful photo in the book yeah, yeah and that photo to me i mean honestly that's one of my favorite photos in the entire book right. because it's just 
it sums up Doug's entire career in right. some ways. In my right. mind, like, like the skis are hanging on the ceiling, mm-hmm. and he's writing at the desk, and the steam's coming off the coffee mug, yeah. and I'm just like, oh, this is awesome, you yeah. know. And uh, it's a wonderful photo. Yeah, it's just something I had read about as a young man, right? And here I was getting to actually experience it with him, and then. Yeah, we had all this time to just go in depth. Whereas often when you do an interview, clearly you've got like, oh yeah, I can give you an hour. Right. What do you want to do? What yeah. do you want to ask me? You know, and that's it. So this was much more relaxed. And and again, I think that I've had other climbers say this too, that it's like, wow, nobody ever allowed me the space to really think and talk about what's so important to me. Because that's the other thing missing in modern world. I mean, people don't really stop and listen very well anymore i mean you really don't there's very few times when you get the opportunity to think to stop and collect your thoughts and then express them without somebody interrupting you or something and so all that's it's all good it's all healthy stuff yeah you mentioned having an hour and it it brought to mind that the truism that you know the last five minutes of a therapy session is when the good stuff happens and so the advantage of us getting together for days was that that five minutes became eternity. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we couldn't go anywhere. We were trapped. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. No, but the photo really elicits for for mountain people, particularly with the Sierra heritage, you know, and knowing Doug, that photo elicits a very, you know, strong response of take me there right now I, I want to be in that photo you know yeah well that's good to know because it's def- definitely did that for me and the other interesting thing writing about climbing over the years i realize is that and doug can talk about this too because he some of the things he's researched for his book on the alchemy of action influences this but i've noticed over the years that i go on all these intense adventures and i what i remember is the day after you know like i did a climb in the Aragetch Peaks in Alaska years ago and the day I mean it was an ordeal we thought we were going to climb this thing in one day and it ended up taking three so we ran out of food after one day and when we finally got down you know you're completely crushed and we're sitting I was just sitting by the stream above the Arctic Circle and it was a warm day and that's the most vivid memory of the whole thing right everything else is this friggin blur of like oh my god we're not going fast enough are we going to survive kind of thing and then you get down and it's just like wow i am completely utterly alive and and then when you go to write about it that's all you can think about and so i've always had a hard time like i'm in awe of these people that do first ascents and then write down every detail because i honestly don't remember a lot of the detail and it wasn't until Doug said, oh, that's because of what? One of the neural hormones or something, right? That you just don't, you don't have any kind of memory or not as, it's a harder to remember. Yeah, the, I think the hormone you're referring to is anandamide, <clears throat> which is essentially our internal weed, marijuana. Like, turns out it's a human hormone. Who would have guessed? But the stuff works on us because we have receptors for it and because it's part of a, a hormone system that we have and we have it for a reason and it's partly there to remind us as anybody who's ever gotten stoned knows to be in the present Mm. to be now and uh what else was i doing yeah because i mean it doesn't it affects your um short-term memory doesn't it just like getting stoned, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. It really does. So when you're actually in the thick of action, that means 
you probably don't remember details in the same way. Is that correct? Yeah, and like the Zen saying, you know, Zen activity is so uh, consuming that when the moment's gone, it's burned up like ashes. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept too because I'm always fascinated by it's kind of behind my question about partnerships is this this um, brothers in arms uh, concept, um, which I'm sure there's chemical reasons and hormonal reasons for that response. But did you find that um, portrayed through these athletes? Yes. I mean, especially athletes who are doing big mountain projects. I mean, partnership becomes very important there. If you're, if you're sport climbing hard, you know, anybody can hold the rope for the most part. So it's not the same kind of thing, but yeah, I mean, again, it gets back to the who, right? I mean, I just think that if you, I mean, most people that have spent their lives climbing have one or two really important partners. It seems like that they really click with that. Your, your goals are aligned. Um, your talents are fairly aligned. Um, you've got time off together, things like that. And, um, and if you lose that partner, it's, it's a big loss, honestly. It's, it's, well, it's just kind of like having a significant other, right? I mean, it's like picking a wife. I mean, there are just certain people uh, that, you, yeah, you can tolerate for a dinner party, but you do not want to spend three days up on a wall with. Yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated, too. You know, I have my own climbing experiences with really key partners and mentors and people who are formative in my life. But then reading about, you know, um, actual soldiers who come back from war. And who then are living a very desensitized life and um, craving that, what they left behind. Um, Do you find that in those top end climbers? I think, yeah, I think it's something you have to deal with. And the nice thing about climbing is that you can do it your entire life, probably. Um, You know, whereas to be a a modern warrior um, and if you survive that or even, I mean, I saw when I was working on the book, there was a program on HBO and I can't remember the name of it. It's a Peter Berg documentary about sports uh, and they interviewed uh, NFL football players and just, and that's in a way a better example because here you are, you know, from 18 to 25, let's say, you are put on this enormous pedestal. You're in the spotlight all the time. You're paid millions of dollars. And then suddenly that's just gone. You know, so to try to come back to normal life there is so difficult. And it's, that's just a more concentrated version of climbing. Um, you know, the good thing about climbing, just take it down a notch, man. I mean, you know, you can still go do it. And, uh, and if you ever made millions, then uh, you are really doing well. Right. So. Doug, what's, what have been some of your key partnerships over the years? Boy, my earliest climbing partner, John Fisher, um, <clears throat> and I grew up climbing together starting in high school. Uh, and then we went right on to, um, I got accidentally hired to guide at the Palisade School of Mountaineering. I turned right around and got John a job there. Five years later, he owned the place. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, our lives just kept on being intertwined. He... Um, he had a bad bout with alcohol later on. We had a falling out, but he got sober and we came right back together. And, you know, it's a pretty rich journey. And I haven't even talked about the part where we roped up. Right. Bigger picture. Yeah. Chris, you referenced several times in the book that these lessons learned on cliff faces and frozen waterfalls and alpine peaks can be brought home and used to benefit society as a whole. Yeah, I hope so. 
because I think they're important lessons. I think that that's a difficult uh, chasm to jump over for most people. Like uh, I talked to Conrad a little bit about and then he goes, ah, it's just, you know, we're mostly out there escaping all that, you know? And so a lot of people don't necessarily bring it home, but Conrad has, I mean, he applies his discipline and commitment to um, climate change issues and things like that all the time. And, um, and I think that just living a simpler life is such a awesome um, lesson to be learned these days and, and a heightened life, you know, that first of all, to kind of find your passion and pursue it. I think that's the first major lesson. And then also what Tommy talks about, which is that adversity is your friend. I mean, don't always try to dodge it. Um, lean into it and accept it. And, you know, it, I mean, I, I, it's funny on this trip, you know, it's like, oh, we're having such a great time. And then next week I'm going to go home and I'm going to deal with this, you know, pile of shit on the desk that everybody has waiting for them. Right. And so there's this little bit of dread. But if I'm smart, I can take the same kind of um, attitude, which is kind of an open ended. Hey, whatever happens, happens attitude. I'm going to get through this. I know I've got the self-confidence to uh to deal with these challenges i think if you can apply that in your normal life you're, you're going to be better off other than the you know because the alternative is just being crushed by the day-to-day grind yeah right on and are there examples of athletes specifically doing that outside of conrad who maybe uh i think everybody older, in the book, wiser i think everybody in the book does that honestly i mean tommy's sort of uh he's he elaborated on it the most, both in his book and in his talks and things like that. His father brought him up with that philosophy and, um, and it served him well. So he's, he's probably the best example. And I kind of talk about that in the book, but they're all like that. You know, everybody, like you said, um, Alex, it's like no big deal. Alex, I mean, shit, no matter, nothing that happens bothers Alex. Doesn't seem like yeah, we were at OR, and I was staying with a friend who was a Black Diamond rep at the time, good friends with Alex, and Alex is there hanging out. And he was actually going out to meet Conrad to, to solo um, uh, what's the popular kind of trade uh, waterfall there. I forget the name of it, but, you know, obviously doable for mere mortals. <clears throat> and he... You know, like you said, it was no, it was no big deal. He was borrowing boots. He was borrowing crampons and we're sitting there scratching our head, you know, like, wow, we just want to go get up tomorrow morning and ski pow. But it's a, it's a different construct. It is a different construct. And I, I said that in the introduction to Alex's chapter that, um, after you hang out with him for a few days, it's like, oh, well, maybe I've just been misinterpreting this for my entire life. Like, maybe it's not actually dangerous to go solo the Stex Alathe. And you start thinking, well, I just have not been seeing it clearly. And then, and then you're standing <laughs> at the base of the Stex Alathe looking up, and you're thinking, holy shit, this is ridiculous, right? I mean, his, his whole perception is so different. But it's so normal to him, and he makes you believe it. So, yeah, being around Alex is kind of a mind-bending experience, honestly. And when he and, and I and Tommy, we uh, climbed Leaning Tower together. I was photographing it. They were climbing uh, the route Wet Lycra night, Nightmare. And we got to the top, and, I mean, I didn't even have rock shoes. I just had approach shoes, and we had giant bags at this point. We'd hauled all the fixed line up and everything with us and the cameras, et cetera. And there's this sort of 
it's probably like a five five walk off at the top but you know the whole friggin wall of leaning towers right below you 1500 feet of overhanging rock and i'm like whoa i don't know about this you know because all the ropes have been coiled and alex is like what's the big deal it's easy and i'm like somehow having alex Heinel tell you it's easy doesn't really bring any comfort right and tommy's just laughing and uh, so i'm like holy shit, I mean, I, I don't know if I want to do this. And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. I'll just, you know, I'll walk right behind you. So he basically walked and like herded me across this thing and, and would have caught me if I slipped. Right. But I mean, you know, if anybody else would have said it's easy, I might have believed him. But who cares? A, a guy that can solo 513, it didn't, you know, I don't know if that's easy or not. Yeah, it's hard not to get seduced by those things and stay in your own skill set. That's really cool that you just walked across there, but... Um... I'm me. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> there was a ledge below it. And he goes, if you fell, you would just fall on the ledge. I'm like, yeah, but I would have a heart attack on the way to the ledge. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but you got kind of, you got in a bind earlier in your career doing that, right? Because you'd been with Bakar. And it was right after I had been following him around Joshua Tree, mm-hmm. put on my journalist hat, and it was so... Show me some stuff. He showed me some stuff, and then I drove away and went to the buttermilk and fell 40 feet and broke my back. Yeah, so there's a harsh lesson. I mean, that's, yeah. It's a crazy story. It was harsh, and i ugh, so lucky to be alive after that, actually. I remember watching John Solo in Owens River Gorge, and we were, you know, climbing our normal routes you know 510 511 and he's not only soloing these routes but then down climbing them you yeah. know 12s 13s yeah. just shocking and beautiful to see mm-hmm. consider myself really lucky to witness that so i think between the two of you there's over 100 years of collective mm-hmm. climbing experience right easily um in in your experience do you see any commonalities or uh, an overarching sense of how Climbers in general, whether elite or everyday, deal with the loss of partners and loss of people in the mountains. I've heard the truism that it's that grieving is uh, is very individual, and there's no formulaic right way to do it. And and I've observed that. I've seen people do it all kinds of ways, and I've gone through all kinds of ways of doing it myself. And not just the loss of partners, but like the loss of relationships and shit happens in life, you know? And, and, uh, I don't even know if I can see a pattern in the way it's developed in me. I, that's such an interesting question. I'll be thinking about that over the next few days. Maybe there is, but I'd never thought about looking at that except that, oh man, well, for me, it's, it's always been such an intense thing grieving for whatever reason that it makes me withdraw i pull into myself i take some time it's usually weeks and sometimes even months before i can emerge again and um and yet i feel like it's so important that the goal what i'm seeking what i'm not happy until i get to is that i get i need to get back to beginner's mind so that I can go out into the world and be accepting of whatever happens to me next. It's like, no, I can't stay in whatever kind of shell gets built around this experience. Um, 
I have to heal it so that I can step out as a whole person again. I think that um, there's two aspects to loss, which is the, you know, the personal loss, how important that person was to you. But also, in my experience, when it comes to climbing, um, when someone of enormous talent dies, it's a huge shock to everyone because it rattles their entire reality. Um, and I've seen that over and over again. I mean, Mug Stump was a good example. I knew Muggs personally. He was an incredibly powerful human being. Suddenly he's gone and everybody's like, holy shit, if it could happen to Muggs, it could happen to me, you know? And it sort of, sort of shakes your, uh, your ideas about, hey, this sport is, you know, not that dangerous kind of thing. And then Alex Lowe was another one. I mean, anybody ever knew Alex, he was supernatural, the amount of energy he had. I mean, we used to kind of joke uh, that either he's just going to drop dead as a, up from a heart attack or live to 150 years old. You couldn't tell what, what it was going to be. And then, you know, he gets killed in an avalanche in uh, the Himalayas. So when that happens, uh, you just, it's like you're dealing with your own mortality at the same time. I mean, you're, you've got this enormous loss of a friend or a lover or whatever it may be, but at the same time, it's like, man, this is real. This is a real game we're playing here. And, um, and so it's hard to, everybody has to kind of come to a balance with that in their own way. I mean, it's this incredibly life affirming, uh, experience and activity and at the same time when shit goes wrong it really really sucks I mean instantaneously when somebody's lying at the base of a climb bleeding in the dirt it's not worth it and uh, it takes a long time to rebuild that confidence that it is I think that I've been thinking about this a lot lately about what is acceptable risk and acceptable risk is always acceptable if you get away with it. And we all do most of the time. 99% of the time we get away with it. Uh, if we didn't, we wouldn't be doing these activities. Overall, they're pretty safe. But occasionally, shit will go wrong. And, um, you know, the price is very, very high. And everybody's got to cross that line for themselves or decide where it is, honestly. Right. Yeah. Did, it, did the athletes speak to that in the book? I mean, there's a, there is a great chapter about you know, a climber losing their partner. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, yeah, most people don't talk about that very much because it's very difficult. And, uh, I mean, it's interesting because we're recording this, what, a, 10 days after Hayden uh, died. Um, and so there's a huge amount of Hayden Kennedy. Uh, there's a huge amount of uh, soul searching on the Internet right now about that. Um, I think it's interesting because that generation... Hayden's generation, you know, they've, we've lost Kyle Dempster now and, um, Scott, uh, Adams, Adamson's. Thank you. So, I mean, some of the greatest alpinists of that generation are now gone. And so each generation sort of has to deal with it in their own way. And this is what happens. I mean, you kind of go 10, 15 years, uh, and people make a name for themselves and then suddenly, uh, they get killed doing it and it makes everybody reevaluate. Living in the mountains, you know, none of us are immune to that we've all lost friends and friends who have become family and that kind of thing but it's it's an interesting adage that you can't control what happens to you but you can control how you deal with it right 
That's right. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's really all you can say about life in general. Right. <laughs> you know, you can only uh, control your own uh, attitude to, to the events that occur. And so, uh, in a way, that's kind of the secret of a good life, right? And I just think that the more I think about these things, there, you know, death is part of life. It's not separate from it. I think we try to make it separate, but the fact is, why do we attach so much importance? I mean, if somebody lived 25 years, 27 years, like in Hayden's case, and it was an absolutely brilliant life, we should celebrate that. I mean, it didn't go on forever. Okay, that's too bad, but that's the way it is, right? And, uh, and so, I don't know. Alex, again, had one of the best comments about this in an interview. He said, he goes, yeah, if I get killed, half the people say, wow, well, he, at least he died doing what he loved. And the other half will say, what a fucking douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of, that's pretty much sums it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I, I actually did enjoy Conrad's quote, you know, the, the biggest loss is wasting our one rare and precious life. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's a lot of power to that. You cannot live in fear, you know. Yeah. That's, that's the tragedy. That would be worse, for sure. Yeah, and bright lights tend to burn out quicker arguably maybe um what's what's the greatest lesson that climbing has taught each of you guys that's a hard question breathe (laughs) push into the adversity i like that one yeah i think that's important yeah i talked in the book about um being up high on a wall in zion one night when a storm was coming in and of course we had tried to be going really fast we left everything we needed at the base which i do again and again and again i've done that throughout my career and then having this anxiety attack about oh my god we don't even have a headlamp what if we stick the ropes you know as we're rappelling down what an idiot why would i do this and then i stopped and thought I literally, you know, I just spent time with uh, Tommy Caldwell in Yosemite two weeks before, and I thought, huh, what would Tommy do? And it's like, well, <laughs> own it. Yeah, he would own it, and he wouldn't be worried about what might happen. He'd be like, damn sure he didn't stick the ropes, right? So I just started focusing on the task at hand, and it, it was amazing because it was just this instantaneous kind of calming thing instead of running off with all this scary anxiety thinking, right? It brought me back to, okay, what do we need to do to get down? And you get down, you get through it. So that was a, that was a great lesson for me. Right. Yeah. How about you, I had a situation like that just in the last two weeks. <laughs> yeah, too. me too. <laughs> <laughs> We're such idiots. We don't learn, but I, uh, I did Nutcracker again in the Valley mm-hmm. and we, and it was getting dark, go figure. Mm-hmm. And towards the top, and this kind of wonderful thing came out of it. Like there are all these ropes that are actually not holding each other up. The people climbing brilliantly, doing well, and but it's late and there's lots of ropes of climbers on the climb. So pretty soon we're, <laughs> I guess we're at the top and there's two headlamps and six or seven people, and we're. <laughs> And we're rappelling down and taking headlamps to the next party. And we joined all these ropes joined together um, in the darkness to and became one rope and got everybody up and everybody down off of it. And, you know, we met new people and made friends and not going to forget each other for a long time. It was cool. That is cool. 
Yeah, so it, it can become a benefit. Yeah. And it, you know, it brings people together clearly. Yeah. So yeah, but if you weren't out there doing it, you would never have that experience. You wouldn't even get to work with your neighbors in that way, right? Yeah. 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 Totally different approach actually than the modern life. Yeah. In the most cases, yeah. Right. Until, you know, like an emergency happens, an earthquake or something, people always talk, oh, everybody just comes together. And yeah, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. The best of humanity. Absolutely. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm excited lately about the Jim DeCrag experience. There's there's this literal tidal wave of climbers in gyms. There are hundreds of gyms. They're springing up everywhere in the urban landscape. You know, it's a whole culture (coughs) unto itself. And the climbers out in the the real world quote unquote are um are concerned you know there's a lot of talk about okay what are we going to do when this tidal wave wants to come outdoors and i'm thinking yeah bring it on you know this because the it's this contact with nature that we've been talking about that's so vital and so enlightening to to all of us it's steered our lives in these great directions so i want to see those gym climbers come outside and experience that you know i want them to be in that conga line that was going up um manure pile buttress you know nutcracker it's an opportunity um they want them to have that opportunity to to get in over their heads and get scared and and pull it off you know and whatever it takes because you know the gym experience is so is great and they get fired up but it's also limiting because it does it's not contract with wild nature with the, mm-hmm. the real thing so uh so anyway i like a year ago i was in yosemite with um a film crew and with these two teenage girls who were gym climbers and i got the uh, privilege of taking them on their first outdoor climbing on it's a great video nutcracker for instance (laughs) um and and you could see on the film their bafflement and discovery and then delight with like coming to terms with the natural world scary Mm -hmm. interesting intriguing oh this is cool Uh, and so anyway i'm i'm really excited about that these days and helping um helping people to get outside it's got to be very rewarding for you too to see that next generation coming through the ranks oh yeah you know i've been a guide all my life i've taught people how to climb i've facilitated these kinds of experiences like sandbagging is one of the tools that i use yeah come on Mm -hmm. (laughs) and uh and but everything's changed now and and they're you know, people will come up to you and seriously go, can you learn to climb outdoors? Yeah, we used to. Shocking. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, pay it forward. Yeah. Pass it on. Right on. Come on out. Yeah. Well, I know, um, you know, we ge- generally uh, encourage pe- people to check out your avenues, you know, find your work. Um, I can personally say it's... It's beautiful writing. Uh, it's amazing photography. That's, I mean, I, people know that about you as a adventure photographer. But I encourage everyone to 
to check the books out. Um, they're very insightful and, and mesmerizing, mesmerizing. And, and the same goes for, for Doug's works. You know, they're, they're seminal works that I think uh, when we look back on things down the road, these, t- these types of titles that you guys have worked on will be um, kind of benchmarks. So well, thank can't, you so much. Can't thank you enough for coming. Wow. It's been great. Yeah, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about all this. Yeah, I'm going to come this bother you in Kirkwood. Great. Good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This episode of Afterglow was recorded at the Pink Palace Recording Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our sound engineer for the episode was Miles Heaps. Our producers are myself and Kristen Hanna, who also edited the episode. The music you hear in Afterglow is provided by Luke Funicella. Check him out on SoundCloud and give him some love. Our sixth and final episode of Season 1 of Afterglow drops on Friday, January 5th, with the one and only Tommy Caldwell. Ready? George, shut up. We're recording.